Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. A bright girl born into a bright southern post-Civil War world loses her sight, loses her hearing, and loses her mind, only to discover that her fate was in her hands. She goes on to lead a life as a writer, speaker, humanitarian, and champion for the disabled. The end. Let's talk about Helen Keller. She was born in 1880, so let's just drop her into history. That year, the Panama Canal was begun. Thomas Edison patented the electric incandescent lamp. And a few months later, the first town was completely lit by incandescent light, and that was Wabash, Indiana. Our friend Laura Ingalls Wilder was 13, and she was suffering through the long winter and dismet. That year, also, novelist George Eliot and Gustave Flaubert died. And on June 27th, Helen Adams Keller is born to Captain Arthur and Kate Adams Keller at Ivy Green at Tuscumbia, Alabama. Our subject today is Helen Keller. It's 15 years out from the Civil War, and she is in the South. Her father was actually, he served in the Confederate Army. He was a captain in the mm -hmm. Confederate Army. <laughs> Thus his name, Captain Arthur. Captain and Mrs. And Mrs. But Mrs. name was Kate. She was a belle with Yankee in the closet. Somehow she's related to Nathan Hale. Somehow she's related to John and John Quincy Adams. Her father was more of a Southern blood. He is related to the Lees. So she was an educated Southern belle raised in the South, but she did have some Yankee hiding out in her bloodline. The thing is, she was actually supposed to, Helen, was supposed to be named Helen Everett Keller. You know how you tell your husband something, and you think yes. it's important, and then, eh, it just goes like it was never there. Right. So she was supposed to be named... No, I know nothing like that, honey. <laughs> so she was supposed to be named Helen Everett Keller, and mm -hmm. then Papa got flustered at the christening, and um, he remembered it was supposed to be his wife's family, a last name, in her family, so he picked Adam's. And so that's, it's Helen Adams Keller. That's her, right. Because, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you write it down and that's that. Poor Kate is just sitting there going, whatever the Southern Bell term for Jack Wagon was. Bless I'm his sure heart. She, bless his heart. That's what she was saying. <laughs> so Helen, you know, she's very advanced for her age, said her mm -hmm. mother. But as we all say. That. Of course. And especially our firstborns. <gasps> mm -hmm. They are gifted when they look at us and smile at, you know, two weeks old. So Captain already had two boys. So probably, you know, he was happy, but. It was probably not as miraculous as an adventure as the wife. He was right. She was 20 years younger than he. Right. And I read one source that said that she was kind of unhappy right after she married him going, uh-oh. Oh, what did I, I do? Just made a exactly. Exactly. I had read the same thing. And so the birth of Helen was actually very welcome because it gave her some unconditional love and mm -hmm. something that she could mold and guide and, and turn loving attention towards mm -hmm. because the marriage was not what marriage is, what we expect it to be. He is kind of um, an absent-minded professor-like guy <laughs> who didn't have the money that he purported to have. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of hard work to be done around the place that perhaps Kate wasn't raised to do, but, you know, you do what you do. You do what you do, right. And he, it was a cotton plantation, mm -hmm. and he also owned a newspaper, the Northern Alabamian. Mm -hmm. So he had, he dillied in certain adventures, but I, I don't know how driven he was. Yes, exactly. He was very fond of uh, wandering about with his gun in the woods, and did he or did he not shoot things? Eh. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. maybe he did, but mostly it was like tromping around. 
Meanwhile, Kate is back tending to the garden so that they could have food and tending to the house. They actually lived in, you think, oh, Southern, he's a captain, she's a belle, they live in a plantation. No, it's not. Ivy Green, which is the name of the house that Helen was born into, was a house that they lived in. It was Captain's family's home. They had a little side cabin that the couple lived in when they were first married. I think that the sons were not so crazy about having another woman because the first hut wife, the mother of the sons, died only a year prior. It was probably a really difficult time. So they moved into a honeymoon cottage right mm-hmm. next to this home, which is not very large. It's a clabbered a little cabin next to the main house. Then um, Cottage. Let's use the word cottage. Cabin sounds so rustic. This is the South after all. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Until we get to the Gilded Age cottages, which <laughs> cost multiple millions of dollars and are made of solid marble and gold. So we'll get there <sighs> for a will. different kind of cottage. Yes, Beckett. So <laughs> the baby, Helen, was starting to babble, as babies mm-hmm. do. Say, Mama, you... Wawa. Um, Wawa. She would say, tea, 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 tea. Mm-hmm. tea. And she had, funny. which was interesting, she actually had some signs that she did before, now she's sighted, she has full hearing, there's nothing wrong with this infant, but she actually had some hand signs that she was using to communicate with her parents before this. I know, and I think, as I recall back, I think mine did too. Like, we had milk and... Right. But he was an early talker, so we kind of stopped doing mm-hmm. that, but I can, yeah, that's a good basis for her later right. life. Right, Where she would say, come here, and she would say, go away, mm-hmm. and, yeah. The That word Wawa, in fact, was actually the last word she kept hold of. That's like the last thing, the last vocalization she had until she was about 14. It's understandable. Mm-hmm. So in February, dun, dun, dun. Mm, she's 19 months old. Mm. She gets sick. Now, the, the doctors at the time, the doctors at the time, I, that's all I have to say. But anyway, they said it was <laughs> acute congestion. They didn't know. They didn't know. I, you know, admittedly, yes. They called her in her illness, acute congestion of the stomach and brain. We're thinking, due to our research, and most researchers do, that mm-hmm. it was probably meningitis. Meningitis or uh, scarlet or fever. Or scarlet fever, like Laura Ingalls Wilder's right. sister Mary mm-hmm. had. So she's got no sight, and she's got no hearing. Can you but imagine? But the fever's gone. When, she, when mm-hmm. she wakes up, when she comes out of the fever, the mother thinks, oh, my baby is fine. The, the worst is past us. She's not going to die. And then she tries to wave her hand in front of her baby's face, and it's not recognized. Mm-mm. So Helen is left without sight and without hearing at 19 months old. Mm. Okay, can you imagine? Now, at first, you know, she's writing a lot later. She said, now, who can remember when they're 19 months uh, old? Yeah. yeah. So we'll this get was into a, this when we talk about her as a writer. Yeah. So this was a reconstruction, but she did speculate that perhaps she mm-hmm. thought it was just still nighttime. Right. But, you know, that can only go on for so long. <laughs> Um, after her illness, she used to walk around the house with her mother's skirt in her hand mm-hmm. and just not ever leave. And anytime the mother would sit down to do anything, Helen would climb in her lap. And just, oh, I just think about that. And it's like a shipwreck. It's I like know. a. How scary, though. Yeah, you cling just, to the one thing that you know. You, can, you can't you can hear your mother's voice anymore. Mm-hmm. You can feel her touch. But that's it. Yeah. So after a very, very few months, this very real need for human communication kicked in, I think. So mm-hmm. she began to make signs more purposefully, like like yes and no, head shakes. And if she wanted bread, this is so clever for such a little kid. If she wanted bread, she would make the motion of the knife cutting it, and then she would put down that knife, pick up a different knife, and put 
fake butter on her uh-huh. imaginary bread, and that meant bread. That's I want pretty bread lot. with butter. Not That's... just plain. Don't be giving me no bread, plain bread. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. she was pretty clever. And then ice cream, which, oh, my goodness, did she love the sweet things, uh-huh. that girl. I mean, my little kid likes sweet things, too. Yeah. Um, so her <laughs> so ice... is my mother's little kid. <laughs> Nice. I know. Um, so ice cream, here's the best, my favorite sign that she had. Ice cream was cranking. You know how the mm-hmm. old cranking? Yeah. So she'd crank, and then she would, you know, hug herself and shiver. <laughs> Loved it. That yeah. seems very sophisticated. I mean, if I saw me. a child doing that, I'd be like, yes, of course, let me get you some. Yeah. I thought her sign for her father was uh, him opening the newspaper. I mean, that she would recognize that that was her father. And her sign know. for her mother was she would rub her cheek. Mm-hmm. Love, Love, you know, mm-hmm. so cute. At about five, she was very helpful. And five is a very helpful age. Yes, five is like an oasis. So she could help sort and fold her laundry. Mm-hmm. And then she recalls going on small errands for her mother. Somehow they evolved this communication between themselves where her mother would send her for things in the house. Mm-hmm. And she would go get them and bring them back. And how this was communicated just boggles me. But somehow they had this little thing worked out. Mm-hmm. Go get this from the cook and bring it back or whatever. Which is just, uh, this whole thing is contrary to a lot of what we think about Helen Keller at this age. We mm-hmm. think of her just running around the house, throwing temper tantrums, going into rages, which she did. A little but, later. But. Yeah, but she also had this. Very, I mean, signs that she was an extremely intelligent child. Mm -hmm. She used to love, as many little girls do, to be in the room with her mother while she was getting dressed to go Mm -hmm. out. She knew there was bustling. Bustling Mm -hmm. was always an indication something was going on, so she would appear to see what was happening. She didn't quite understand how everything, like, went on, but she heard some company, you know, or felt some company. The bustling was Mm -hmm. coming, and everyone was getting all fancy, and she wanted to be fancy. There's probably smells in the air. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Of strangers, of... Special food being cooked. Yeah. So she hurried in her mother's room and she put oil on her head because you, you, that's how you smoothed back your hair. You know, Mm -hmm. you had a little perfumed oil. She put way too much oil on her head (laughs) and then she powdered her face (laughs) like a geisha and then she put a veil on and kind of tucked it into the front of her shirt and then Uh she tied this big fat bustle on her booty (laughs) and then went downstairs. I'm ready. I'm ready. Let's let's party. Yeah. And that was a very vision of loveliness. Yeah, no kidding. But, you know, that's just a typical kid would, Mm -hmm. you know, you give, the first time you give your daughter um, makeup. Oh, (laughs) my goodness. Make sure you got lots of makeup remover cloths. Well, she had a very, relatively, as Susan was saying, a happy, really considering, a happy young childhood. The house where they lived had this extensive garden and to coax everything out of the ground around here. You have to uh-huh. co- you have to baby it and right. hope and uh-huh. like, feed it things. In the South, it just comes out. It's, right. it's just exuberant. <laughs> and it's so foreign to me to realize that you just, you walk out and there it is, wild flowers. That's right, growing. It's just amazing to me. So they had an extensive garden with climbing vines and jasmine and all kinds of things. And she had the this little friend, the daughter of their cook, who kind of understood her signs. You know, you hang out together. You kind of, even if little kids don't understand each other's right. language, they can still play. Absolutely. And this little girl um, was named Martha Washington. <laughs> well, she, uh, her mother was the cook, Martha Washington's mother, and she used to let them help her in the kitchen, which I think Martha Washington's mom deserves a medal. <laughs> because two little five-year-old girls helping, that's with quotes, in the kitchen. And that's not the safe stoves we have today. Mm-mm. 
fire. So she, yeah, so she would let him stir and knead the bread, and sometimes she would send him out to hunt eggs, which seems like, oh, I need eggs, but it might be like, can you please get out of here and yeah. go look for eggs? They had wild, not wild chickens, but the chickens would wander the ground, and chickens are very fond of what they call stealing their eggs. Mm-hmm. So they'll they'll make a new nest in a secret place and then go. So it was like very fun to go find where My the eggs, eggs were. were yeah, stolen away. Yeah. So um, and then the guys in the barn would always let Helen. Everyone was so accommodating to her. Would let her feel the cows while they were being milked and mm-hmm. let her put her hand on them while they were milking. Mm-hmm. Everyone was so accommodating to her this child. Who yeah. yeah. That's, no, that's, it's got to help. She is a very attractive child, too. Very. Extremely attractive. little girl. Yeah, so I don't know how much, you know, she did get into some regular old five-year-old, six-year-old deviltry. They took a brand new cake and went behind the woodpile and ate it all, and then until they were sick, you know, and just, like, came out and, you know, hurled. It was, you know, whatever. You can't eat a whole cake. Some misguided fool thought it would be a good idea to give each of these little girls a pair of scissors and have them cut out paper dolls, and so they cut out the paper dolls for five, six minutes, and then they started to cut off all the flowers in the garden and leave them (laughs) on the ground, and then they decided that they would cut off each other's hair. And so Helen went first, and she... She cut off pretty much all of Martha Washington's hair, and then Martha Washington decided it was her turn, and she got a hold of the scissors and cut off one long ringlet of Helen Keller's before the mom, woo, just in time. Yeah. Yeah. So she had one big old bald spot, but... Poor old Martha Just Washington. Just what you want, you had a blind child cutting your hair. Oh, my goodness. One time my son took my daughter's ponytail. He was probably about <gasps> three, and he got his hand on some scissors, and he grabbed her ponytail, and he thought she thought he was just playing with it. Whack. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, bad mom. Sorry. Well, things started to go downhill. She got a little older. She was pretty isolated, and the frustration of not being able to communicate... She started to notice that other people didn't communicate the way she did. Mm-hmm. Other people's mouths moved. And she was completely confused by this and would hold her hand on people's faces and try to figure out. And then she would move her mouth frantically and nothing. And she'd get so mad and she'd get angry mm-hmm. and start throwing things. Yeah. She just couldn't understand what was going on. And she would freak out sometimes until she got exhausted and would just cry and cry and cry. And she'd go find her mother and just sit in her lap and just cry and i can only imagine well that's a such a formative age for learning those early childhood years you are just supposed to be you're hardwired to learn and she's not i mean she's exhausted everything that she could on her own and she would try to do things like she tried to teach the dog sign language you know her not sign language but her signs her, signs, her way right. to communicate and of course the dog's like yeah, well, yeah hello i don't know what you're talking about and she would actually beat up the dog who started to hide from her because you know who wouldn't which and, is kind of ironic because if you look at all the pictures of her this woman had a thing for dogs mm-hmm. she's always with a dog a different kind of dog and well this first dog lost the toss yeah. let's put it that way this first dog pulled the short straw because it was the one the that training came. dog yeah um so she set herself on fire by accident she actually wasn't doing anything bad she had washed an apron and was setting it out to dry right. but set it out pretty much right on the fire and so it caught on fire and the cook had to save her and she locked her mother in the pantry she started to figure out what keys yeah. were for yep she locked her mother in the pantry and then okay you know that's fine Let's undo it again. But no, she left her in there and she felt her mother beating on the door and she sat on the porch and laughed audibly, which is creepy as heck. She so her mother was in there for three hours, beating on the door and stomping on the floor, and before someone could let, could her come out. And let her out. Meanwhile, Helen Keller's sitting right outside the door, laughing. <laughs> oh my goodness! So, I wonder you know, what the mom was saying. Like I'd be like, 
Never mind. I won't tell you what it'd be like. Well, no one will hear her, so she can say, <laughs> whatever, she can she say whatever she wanted. The parents are starting to really get despairing, honestly, about what they're going to do because they can't. They had a second child by now, mm-hmm. a little baby named Mildred, and Helen had had this doll named Nancy later. It wasn't named at the time because she had no conception that things had names. names. So she had this doll she used to like to rock in this cradle. I mean, for hours and hours, and she would pet its head and just rock and rock the doll. Well, until one day. There's a baby in there. Yeah. <laughs> and it's the same baby that had been taking over her mother's lap, which was bad enough. But no, she is in the cradle of the doll mm-hmm. and she flipped it over. Mm-hmm. And if the mother hadn't caught the baby, the baby could have been very injured. Injured, absolutely. And um, she wrote later that she felt at this time of her life like invisible hands were holding her. She just felt like anywhere she turned, invisible hands, and she wanted to fight them and she couldn't see them. And her rages just got extreme. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I can understand, you remember the terrible twos, how they couldn't form their sentences, mm-hmm. and so the rage would just come out? Mm-hmm. Just imagine a bigger yeah. kid with oh. bigger power oh. being able to have yeah. those rages. Oh, yeah. Yeah, her few signs were just <clears throat> not doing it anymore. She she wanted to communicate more than, give me milk, I want cake, where is mother? I mean, you know, as anyone would. You just... So especially her mother started to get despairing, and she's in a small, out-of-the-way town. How are they going to get school for her? And Charles Dickens wrote a book called American Notes, in which he wrote about the education of a person named Laura Bridgman in the 1850s. And Laura Bridgman was also deaf and blind, though not from birth. Also, similar circumstance, almost two, had an illness, illness. became deaf and blind. And her teacher, Dr. Howe, had taught her to communicate. And that was a ray of hope. They decided they would try to find Dr. Howe, but, but Dr. Howe was dead. So they decided to go a different way, and there was a famous oculist who they said, okay, well, maybe we can fix her eyes. Let's just travel to Baltimore right. and see. Mm-hmm. The oculist couldn't help her. It was beyond help. There was just not the right. scale back then. But the thing is, he had a contact with a man named Alexander Graham Bell. Who, at the time, is considered an authority on teaching the deaf. Everyone was so nice to her everywhere. The men on the train were nice. Ladies would give her gifts. Um, one lady gave her a box of shells that she was actually taking to her own grandmother. And, and the, the conductor gave her his punch and a whole bunch of paper. And so oh, she just punch, 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 punch. And everybody was so nice to her. She was a little angel girl. Mm-hmm. Her mother curled her hair every night. Mm-hmm. In fact, she'd stand there yawning, almost ready to sleep, but would insist that her hair be put in curl papers. Mm-hmm. So she was very vain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even then, liked the fancy dresses, but I think that helped her a lot, that she was she was charming. Yes. So the series of referrals happened. Dr. Chisholm, the Oculus, referred them to Dr. Bell, um, and then they got referred to Mr. Agn- Anagnos, whose name is very hard to say. It is. Now, the Dr. Howe, who was dead, who taught this, Laura was his Bateman. successor. Right. And he um, worked and owned the Perkins Institution for the Blind in Boston. And he said, we do have a teacher for you. Although it took 10 more months for her to arrive. And Laura Bridgman was teaching at the Perkins School. She taught needlework to little girls. So she had a student come through the school by the name of Ann Sullivan, who we just don't think of Ann Sullivan as being blind because she was the one that guided Helen through her life. She was mostly blind. She There yeah. were times in her life when she could actually see enough to read and write, mm-hmm. and then there were other times her eyes were just exhausted. Right, and she had surgeries on them. Mm-hmm. Many Several. surgeries. Yeah. That her frightens me to think of eye surgery at all, and then mm-hmm. eye surgery during the Civil War era. Uh-huh, yeah. I, <laughs> I mean, I saw Gone with the Wind, where they were just hacking off people's whatevers, but uh, that seems to require a little more finesse. <laughs> I'm scared about that. So yeah. that was pretty brave. So you already know she's brave. Yeah, Ann Sullivan <laughs> is very brave. Finally, 
teacher has arrived. So Annie Sullivan steps off the train when Helen is about six. And we are going to talk about Annie Sullivan inevitably throughout this whole podcast, but we think perhaps she deserves her own minicast. I think she does too, because she was a remarkable woman in her own right, and she's often, you know, put in on the sidelines of the Helen Keller story, but she has a story of her own that really deserves to have a little spotlighting. So we're going to do that. But obviously, we can't not talk about because from the moment they get together there for the rest of Anne's life, they are side by side. They, you can't have one without. Yes. So look for that uh, Anne Sullivan minicast. Anne Sullivan was welcomed with open arms, and she had expected this pale little delicate child like Laura Bridgman, mm-hmm. who she knew. But instead, she gets this strong, bold, healthy, beautiful mm-hmm. child. Yeah, Laura Bridgman was a waif. Yeah, I think, seriously, a lot of Helen's development, physical and mental, was due to the freedom she was given, I think. She was free to explore things mm-hmm. even before Annie Sullivan got there. Right. And so, she had done a lot on her, I mean, she yeah. did, we'd already talked about it. She got as far as she could on her own. Mm-hmm. So, let's take a little break, and when we come back, we will go through the first part of Helen's education. talk about this so march 3rd annie arrives at the keller home she gets busy right away with her studies with her she does she decides that the best way to proceed is to do the finger alphabet i'm going to put a link to the finger alphabet it's the one in modern sign language even where you spell the letters Mm -hmm. instead of certain signs for everything it's a spelling right and it's a little changed from from back in those days but it's functionally the same thing each letter has a in english has a sign right and so she would hold out helen's hand and make the sign into her hand Mm -hmm. which seems awkward but i suppose once you're used to it it goes pretty quickly I think that would be Yeah, if, when yeah. you watch, you can watch YouTube videos and we'll link mm-hmm. up because we love YouTube. Um, yeah. But it, it, they do it very rapidly. So the first lesson she decided was that she would spell out doll, D-O-L-L. Mm-hmm. And it was she was meant to trade off, you know, spelling and holding out the doll. Spelling doll, giving her the doll. Spelling doll, holding out the doll. But Helen Keller freaked out that someone was taking the doll away and had one of her, like, so that was a failed experiment. Right. So the next day, it was C-A-K-E. And then we ate some cake. She got the cake and ate it up really fast because she was afraid that she was going to take it away. <laughs> Again, you know, like, ah, oh, you took the doll. I'm going to eat this cake. So she, like, shoved it in her head as fast as, you know. Luckily, it was one piece and not the whole cake. Right. So that would have been a much more spectacular lesson. So, so a few days later, after some other things had been done, she starts, she meant to spell out sewing card. She had taught Helen to sew on a little card already. This is mm-hmm. four days after she got right. there. She was so delighted to have a new thing to learn. So she sewed the card. And then she spelled C-A for card. Mm-hmm. C-A. And Helen was like, ooh, there's going to be cake. <laughs> and so she was very excited uh, and yeah. wanted some cake and ran right. down to where it was. And yeah. she's, oh, okay. So she has been connecting right. in a vague kind of way that when it starts with C-A, there might be cake. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's kind of an interesting little interim breakthrough days after she gets oh, there. Oh, that's a, with a, now this is three months before Helen is seven. So she is a six-year-old child. Yeah. And she's, she's making these connections. And 
Annie was instructed by the people at Perkins not to coddle Helen, not to spoil her and just to work her. And so that's what she's doing. And obviously, you know, she's connecting on day three. She's getting that there's connection between the spelling and an item. It's pretty good. However, if you've ever seen any of the movies, this is one of the scenes that you remember. Right. And a week later from when Annie gets there, this famous breakfast battle royale we've all seen. There's the dinner table and Helen's walking around helping herself from everybody's plates. Mm-hmm. Nobody's really regarding it. It's just how it rolls around that house. Right. It's part of her being able to explore her world and... Uh-huh. I don't know if it's free to be you and me land or everyone. Everyone's just a peaceful life. Yes, it's quieter this way. Let's Some have eggs. a quiet dinner yeah. or breakfast. Annie Sullivan, is she's putting her hand on my eggs. Really, not at all comfortable with this. No. And she wants to, to stop this in the bud. And so she returns Helen to her chair. And Helen has never had this happen to her before. This is not how breakfast goes. This is not how it goes. And so she starts to lose her mind, and Annie starts to lose her patience. And finally, after the mom and the dad are like, oh, now, see, we always just do. You all need to leave. I cannot handle this with all of you in here making excuses Uh for her. And my goodness, did it take three hours of... Helen throwing the spoon, Annie picking up the spoon, Annie putting her hand in the chair. You will eat the eggs. We will spit the eggs in Annie's face. It is. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure, but at one point, and I almost think this was the day she broke out Annie Sullivan's two front teeth. Yes, I believe you're right. You are. Yes. This was the big, yeah. the big day when all the wills got broken or whatever. And my goodness, everyone was exhausted and sweating. And of course, the mom is pressed to the other side of the door with her tears weeping down the side of the door. And, you know, the father has taken himself off to smoke or something outside. He's probably knocking back some whiskey outside. Yeah. Everyone's this is like the ultimate cry it out right here. Yeah. This, yeah. And they can't they can't no. stand it. But Andy Sullivan said, I cannot. If you don't bug out of this, I, I might as well just go home. They brought her there to do a job. What they were doing yeah. wasn't working. So let's change it around. <laughs> so the family did agree that that was a good strategy. But they also agreed that they couldn't witness it because it was hurting their hearts. So they came up with a plan. So eight days later, this is only March 11th. You know, already she's so much of the family. Right. And she's only been there a little over a week. Yeah. That they decided, okay, the honeymoon cottage where we lived when we were first mm-hmm. married, when Helen was first born, yep. we will take you there, and that's where you'll be. And it's right next door. I yeah. mean, it's not like a trek. It is. Right. It's like a garage size building mm-hmm. right next door to the house. Yeah. So they were off to the garden house with a little boy named Percy to be their servant and stoke up the fire and, you know, fetch the meals and everything so Annie could concentrate on Helen. So Helen ignored the heck out of her teacher at first, just sat there staring into space, doing nothing, reacting to nothing, refusing to touch her. <laughs> nothing. She was not very happy. But during this two-week period that they were in this garden house, her behavior became almost unrecognizable. She's sitting there happily. She's been taught to knit. She's sitting there by the fireplace. Annie's teaching her some things. She's signing back a little bit. She's taken to patting herself on the arm as a new Mm -hmm. sign, and that means good job. She described it later. That was when I I was doing a good job. She Mm -hmm. patted herself on the arm. Like, good job. Good job. So just in two weeks, she had so much to do. They went outside, they explored the garden, they built things, they made things out of mud. Mm-hmm. It was a good philosophy of just inserting education secretly. Right, in isolation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like those immersion classes where they only speak to you in the foreign language. You have to pick it up. Helen was bright, and she wanted to learn. So Yeah, and up until 
up until now, everything had been kind of like a game, a little, I don't understand that this is real, but this is pretty fun. This is new. Let's do this. On April 10th. Annie arrives March 3rd. April 10th. Okay, go. This is when everything changed for Helen. Everything changed. This is the moment you've seen in the movie. If you read anything about Helen Keller, you know the scene. So this is when she finally decided. Now, they were trying this thing where they were trying to differentiate between mug, M-U-G, and water. And Helen persisted in calling the mug W-A-T-E-R. And she was just interchangeable. It meant Mm -hmm. drink, I think is what it meant. Either of those things just meant give me a drink. And she didn't understand... And finally, Annie took her hand and took her to the water pump, of which we have a photo we will put in the show notes. It's just amazing that it's there and we have a photo. She took her to the pump and a man was pumping water and she held Helen's hand under while simultaneously spelling water. And that is the moment that she understood. Ding! Is that amazing? Yes, it's very amazing. Because if she was learning fast before, after that moment... It exponentially improves. And right there, she's standing there. Her face completely changes. It's like the light has obviously dawned, and she demands right then the names for everything. She was grabbing things mm-hmm. and pointing. What? What is this? What? Right. What? What? And um, then she pointed to Annie Sullivan. What? 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 Right. And Annie Sullivan spelled into her hand, teacher. And that is what she called Annie Sullivan the rest of her for life. Not Annie, life. not Miss Sullivan, nope. but teacher. Teacher. Yeah. The, uh, it was amazing. And then Helen Keller writes that that is the moment which Annie Sullivan gave her her human inheritance back. Ooh, chills. I know, that is chilling. Helen Keller is very quotable. Yeah, she is very quotable. (laughs) She also said, for the first time that night, I longed for a new day to come. Mm -hmm. That is amazing. That's what that is right there. I think that is amazing. Hope in Tuscumbia, Alabama. So Annie decided, and this is not... According to the Perkins School, this is instinctual. Mm-hmm. I'm so proud of yeah, her. Yeah, she's already gone off track a little bit from yeah, what Perkins had suggested that she she do. Yeah, Perkins wants her to do drills and um, rote learning. Yeah, rote learning. That you know that was the times too. I right. have to tell you, school was that's what's yeah, cool that's what about. they did. And, yeah, you, you memorized if you mm-hmm. had comprehension, didn't matter as long as you could spout it back right. out. Kind of. <laughs> so so Annie decided to teach Helen to talk the way that a baby talks. There were a lot of family around the the Kellers in and out visiting Mm -hmm. and one of the little cousins was about the right age to just learn to talk and Annie observed that how they talked to that baby was they would talk in full sentences Mm -hmm. and the baby would just take out mommy milk or whatever whatever it came out of it and so Annie decided to just spell full sentences and you know what if she didn't get the middle words so what because little kids don't get the middle words but they get what's going on and they pick up the rhythm of their natural Mm -hmm. language and, I, I, you know, that was amazing to learn that. I've often wondered how Helen understood kind of concepts, concepts or grammar mm-hmm. or anything. But that makes right. a lot of sense to me. Yeah. You know, because you do. You talk to your child and you never have to sit down and explain was is the past tense of the <laughs> verb to be. Never do you have that conversation. No. <laughs> Not until this very moment. Thank you, Beckett. <laughs> well, but can you imagine? Yes, you're that, absolutely right. But if left right. to the Perkins School, that's how she would that's have learned. Ex- right, right. So here's an example kind of of how she expressed herself at the very beginning. It's not very fluent, but you can kind of see how she's developing in her thought process. Somebody gave her some candy. That happens a lot. does, and she's eaten most of it, admittedly, on the way back. But she saved one on purpose. She said, give baby candy. Baby meaning her little sister. Mm-hmm. Give baby candy, she would spell. And then her mother, who was learning to spell, wrote, no, baby eat, no. And Helen asked, she felt the baby's mouth inside. Mm-hmm. And then she asked for the word. She pointed to her own teeth and asked, what's that? What this? What? Mm-hmm. And then she wrote, baby teeth. No. 
baby eat candy? No. Is no. that a leap? That's huge. Yeah. So she was basically saying, oh, the baby can't candy, eat candy. Candy because it doesn't have any teeth. Yeah. Yeah. And so this quote, though, makes me like Ann Sullivan very much. I already like Dan Sullivan. I do, too. <laughs> um, she says, it's much better, I think, to assume the child is doing his part and that the seed you've sown will bear fruit in due time. Yes. That is my parenting philosophy right mm-hmm. there. I mean, I was the one that was using the big words on the kids when all the other parents are, you know, talking in the short sentence, the short baby talk. I'm talking and just like I'm talking to you right now. I think That's how I talk to my children and they all... I will brag on my kids, have very good vocabularies because of it. Yeah, Helen had an advantage from the beginning. With this philosophy of teaching, I think it was just very natural that she would grow. They went on all these science field trips, Mm -hmm. and they made models out of things so Helen could feel them. They did a lot of knitting and sewing because it was good for her manual dexterity. And Annie had this philosophy that any question Helen would ask, she would try to answer, Mm -hmm. no matter what. And no matter if it was late at night or or whatever. So I thought that was very amazing. And Helen had written later that the first years of my education were so very beautiful. Oh, that's nice. There's something to be said for instincts when, Mm -hmm. yeah, when dealing with, I think. So they decided to make the great pilgrimage to Boston to Perkins, the Perkins Institute and Mr. Anagnos, which I wish he had a more easily pronounceable name. (laughs) Let's call him, no, we're going to call him Mr. A, because really the number of times I will stumble over that name will make you roll your eyes. He is now officially Mr. A, head of the Perkins School. School. Helen was excited to meet Mm -hmm. the other, now there were no, other than Laura Bridgman, deaf and blind children. This was a school for the blind. It was very rare to have deaf and blind. Yeah, I think there were less than 50 people Mm -hmm. total worldwide, as far as I know. But she thought that the children, the little blind girls... You know, that's who, what she mm-hmm. called them, would have some kind of secret magic since they could hear it. Oh. Helen had it in her mind that there was going to be something they would know that she didn't know. And she was kind of disappointed <laughs> that they were just ordinary. But she did really bond with them. And she kind of felt like a foreigner coming back to her country because everyone there could do the finger alphabet. Mm-hmm. Right, right. They welcomed her right away. And as soon as she got there, they started spelling it in her, in her hand. Yeah. And she's like... <gasps> It's my people. My people. Yeah. <laughs> so she was, yeah, she was so excited. And she was so eager to learn Braille, like the little blind girls. Mm-hmm. And she wanted to write them letters, her friends. Right. right. And if we all had students this motivated, I tell you what, she <laughs> learned all her, all her Braille letters in one day. That's amazing. She was so motivated. And then she got into counting. She would count everything, count, count, count. And Annie Sullivan wrote to her friend, I really hope she does not take it into her head to count all the hair on her head because we <laughs> are in some trouble. She's, in a, she's a numbers girl. <laughs> yeah. And some of Helen's, Helen's um, sentences about now, right, when she's, she's exploding with vocabulary mm. and just knowledge, she would say, what color is think? Does that sound oh. so poetic? And she she didn't know the name of a lake, but she had remembered someone told her that squirrels came there to drink, so she always called it Squirrel Cup Lake. Squirrel Cup Lake. I think that's so cute. <laughs> On a field trip, they went to a blast furnace, and it was so hot, she stopped, and she looked a little alarmed and said, did the sun fall? And then she also wrote, um, she asked what about colors a lot. Mm-hmm. Like, she asked what color her little sister's eyes were, and when told they were blue, she said, are they like little skies in her face? I wonder what was going in her head. I wonder what, I mean, blue is just, that's an abstract concept. It seems like you could almost get red. 
because red hot, hot red. It almost seems like mm-hmm. those go, but I don't know how you would get the rest of them. They go for us. Unless I, you yeah. have a vague memory of it. I just yeah. don't know. Yeah, and I don't, she was 19 yeah. months old. I mean, she might have, I, probably not. Well, Anne Sullivan was very, very reluctant to publish or even write to her old teacher, Mr. A, a lot about Helen's amazing progress. She was, she did. She was very reluctant because she was kind of fearing this kind of circus act that had happened to Laura Bridgman. Laura Bridgman was exhibited and she Mm -hmm. didn't want that for, she even said, Helen shall not be turned into a prodigy if I can help it. Mm -hmm. So she only wrote stuff for publication with great prodding. Right. She was just so afraid of the circus. Yeah. Well, oh, speaking of circuses, this yes. is kind of funny. Okay. When she was about seven years old, she was taken to a circus where, okay, all kinds of craziness happened. The monkeys stole her hair ribbon. That was mm-hmm. so delightful. Mm-hmm. Like little old weird <laughs> men uh-huh. with hair stole uh-huh. the hair ribbon. That was so delightful. They let the leopards lick her hand. They let the leopards lick her hand. Yeah. Wow. And then um, <laughs> she got to ride on the elephants and... This is so cool. That, like, if people At let her seven, do stuff... That, that is just amazing. And it totally set the tone for the rest of her life. Yeah, this is like a... This is a tiny little slice of what she was allowed to do the rest of her life. People made accommodations for her and her specialness that they just wouldn't make for anybody else. The giraffe. She fed the giraffes. I have to tell you, I fed a giraffe with my son, and when they lick you, yeah. it is gross. It that's is, a big... That's a big tongue. It's like somebody's <laughs> rubbing a whole package of raw chicken on your arm. I'm telling you what. So I do not know if Helen liked that, feeding the giraffes. I, Becky Graham, did not like it. Her her report on this is not recorded, but I tell you, it's not good. Okay, now here's even a funny part. The wild man of Borneo... Yes. The wild man of Borneo was totally scared of her and freaked out and ran away. <laughs> And she also, her favorite story was Little Red Riding Hood. Really? Do we know anything about Little Red Riding Hood? Why, yes, we do. It's on one of our mini casts. But she wanted, she wanted that over and over and over and over. Lost in the woods, lost in the woods, mm-hmm. she found her way out. Lost in the woods, found her way out. Lost in the woods. It was like a parallel to yeah, her life. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but a nice Andy's, metaphor. Yeah, mm-hmm. Andy Sullivan had to tell that over and over and over and over and over. You know, after she got out there to the blast furnace field trip and to the circus and all these places where Annie was taking her, she started to become this famous object of curiosity mm-hmm. honestly they, she was taken to a doctor's convention and every single person there eminent men all over the country wanted to come talk to helen keller mm-hmm. and have her finger speak to them mm-hmm. up until that point it wasn't recognized that people with handicaps could do all this yeah you know it was limitations was all you thought of when you looked at a handicapped person when you looked at helen keller you thought possibilities. Well, that's true. And they also called, that's a very good point. They, um, they called the places where blind people went to learn often asylum. So that gives you a viewpoint of like, let's put them somewhere to keep them safe. Mm -hmm. Now, Helen at eight years old has a command of language that's just amazing to me. She knows and uses words like phenomenon, perpetual, (laughs) mystery, extraordinary. That is extraordinary. (laughs) Oh my goodness. She was told once by somebody, no, you can't understand it yet. I won't tell you about that. It was something to do with the tariff act or some taxes or something. And she was angry and she wrote, how do you know I cannot understand? Remember that Greek parents were very patient with their children and used to let them listen to wise words and the hopes that they would understand some of them. And I'm like, Aristotle me, come on. So two years ago, two years ago, uh-huh. she couldn't even understand what doll meant. And now she's talking about the ancient Greek, Greek. way of raising children. <laughs> This is what we're looking at here. And then her cousin, one of her boy cousins came and thought it would be fun to teach her Morse code. 
Uh-huh. And oh my goodness, did that rage through the house for a while. And so everybody was stomping, like oh, yeah. Morse code in right. the house. <laughs> it was so fun. Or you'd bang on the wall, and Helen loved it because she could feel it. Sure. In the wall. And even her mother started using that as a shorthand. Uh, she learned Helen come here. In Morse code. In Morse code and would stamp it on the floor. And here would come Helen running. I loved Better that. Than the bell. I think that's awesome. It is very awesome. Um, so she started to learn to speak out loud, which was her heart's desire. Mm-hmm. I think when she was 10, she was never really never that proficient at it. But this is when she started. She had a very, very, very strong accent. Vowels were often completely wrong Mm -hmm. because she had to guess at them by feeling people's throats and... In the air coming out of their mouth and out of their nose and the vibrations, yeah. And a lot of it depends on your tongue position. And honestly, you can't really keep your tongue position when somebody's hand is in your mouth. Mm -hmm. So she really didn't get a good picture of There's actually a YouTube video. Gosh. Who would have thought that we'd be quoting YouTube so much with, about a blind and, and deaf woman? But <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a YouTube video with Ann Sullivan and Helen Keller where they just demonstrate how she heard the sounds with her with her fingers on their face. And Ann t- shows you. I wanted to hear Helen Keller speak. Mm-hmm. I wanted to hear the accent that I read, you know, the V, the B's turning into V's. And I wanted to hear it myself. And I, and I really never did find it. So if anybody out there has anything, link us up, please. Yeah. But this one, it, 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 she does speak a little bit, just one word at a time or one sound. But it's, it's kind of interesting that you can see how they actually did it. Yeah. yeah we don't have too many, um, videos of a lot of the other ladies. So it's kind of neat to get to one right. that we have videos. And, and they are older. It's not, it, yeah. it's not young. I mean, come yeah. on. Yeah. Now, um, when she was 11, this is kind of a window into her character. She had a dog, not the same dog that she used to beat up. This is a different dog. <laughs> anyway, her dog, Lioness, Lioness, not Linus, Lioness, girl lion, died, and the public, she's already famu, started gathering money to buy her a new dog. Mm-hmm. And instead, she, Helen Keller, age 11, said that she preferred... Somebody had written to her about a little boy named Tommy Springer, who was four, in Boston. And she said, rather than buy me another dog, which I appreciate, thank you very much, please send all of this money to educate Tommy Springer, who is deaf and blind. Yay. And so... So at 11, she begins her philanthropic, humanitarian... Yep. Let's help the blind, help the deaf community. And at 12, she held a tea in aid of not only Tommy Springer, but others. She had, you know, she had become the focus of people writing, you know, Mm -hmm. oh, Helen, how do you do it? She held a tea. And they, she had to move it because she had more than 50 people. It was, um, you know, a per plate dinner plus give me, us some donations right. kind of thing. Come and meet Helen Keller, the famous, you know, blah, blah, blah. Right. They raised $2,000 in 1892 $1, money. Wow. That's a lot of money. So that's a lot of money for a 12-year-old to raise. That is not a lemonade stand. No. <laughs> that is that is serious money. Or a bake sale. The first blow to her sunny view of the world as she knew it at this point kind of came when she was 12. Mm -hmm. There was an episode that everyone calls the Frost King Mm -hmm. episode, and she wrote this long story. Yeah, to Mr. A. Well, he he published it everywhere. He was so proud, and he kind of tried to take credit for quite a lot of what Helen Keller did. Yeah, Yeah, so that was a Look what our beautiful... She has become the prodigy that Anne didn't want her to become. Yeah. And so Mr. A is showing off this story. Yeah, showing it everywhere. He loved it. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and then he discovered, as everyone did, that it was plagiarized from a story that Helen had actually heard once four years ago mm-hmm. when right. she was about eight. Right, and so he was so very 
embarrassed. Absolutely. And he was so very angry. And he really never got over that. That was a big blow. Like, he had embarrassed his institution. Mm -hmm. He'd embarrassed himself. Mm -hmm. He felt betrayed by Annie Sullivan. He felt betrayed by Helen Keller. Mm -hmm. And really, that relationship with Perkins kind of died. That's where it died. That's where it it faded. Many years later, many years later, they did reconcile with Perkins. But at that point, that's when they part ways. So, since she's cut off from Perkins and really blackballed from the whole blind education community right now because of his influence, seems unfair completely, but she turned increasingly to the deaf education community headed by our old friend, Alexander Graham Bell. (laughs) Alexander Graham Bell, famous, of course, for other things, including the telephone, but we'll talk about him in the special features. Um, Let's just suffice to say he is famous, he is eminent, and he can open some doors. That's all we're going to talk about Alexander Graham Bell right now. But he and she and Annie, her constant companion, went to the World's Fair when Helen Keller was 13. And she was not an exhibit at the World's Fair. (laughs) However, the way had been paved for her, the administrator of the World's Fair basically told every guy that headed every booth and every building to let her have free reign, let her touch whatever she wants to Mm -hmm. touch, let her learn whatever she wants to learn. They had his permission. One cool thing happened. The South African exhibit had a diamond mining exhibit. And she... Uh, was the only one really allowed to touch the machine, and she, in the wash, located a diamond. Uh-huh. And the guy said, this is the actually the only diamond found in the United States. <gasps> now, they had brought it from South, right, uh, right. South Africa, but, but theoretically, she had found the only diamond ever found in the United States. And a whole vat of stones. Yeah, right. they, she she was able to run the the wash. The, right. She was able to run it, and you know she felt around and found mm-hmm. it and held it up, and it was the diamond. And no, mm-hmm. no, it wasn't like they were like, wow, because you know they brought it <laughs> yeah. here. But yeah, so technically, but still. yeah. So and she was allowed to touch everything and learn everything, and and she loved talking to the Syrian ladies with their filmy veils, and she just really had a great time. There were lots of interesting smells, and and. And it was just like the energy was great. Mm -hmm. And so she had great memories of that. This is the year she learned French. She's amazing. (laughs) Yes. Five years ago, we were stuffing cake in our head. Right. And then now we're learning French. French. And we're at the World's Fair with Alexander Graham Bell. Yeah. And being given free reign. Oh, how time has changed. Oh, yeah. And um, there was a famous magazine for young people. You know, uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder often talked about this called Youth's Companion. And Helen Keller first wrote the story of her life for that magazine Mm -hmm. at the age of 13. (laughs) Wow. So at 14, she's off to NYC. Woohoo! Big Apple. She heads to the Wright Humison School for the Deaf at this point. And, And like Beckett had said, it since her relationship with the Perkins School and the blind community seemed to have been slightly severed, uh, head for the deaf community, and that's where they lived for quite a few years. This is where she learned German. So now we're up to three languages we speak. (laughs) I have to wonder what the average child, given these opportunities that she had, if they would embrace them like she did and take them in, or if they become jaded and going, oh, it's another diamond from South Africa, you know? 
No, she's just, she's really embracing it. And After this school, the Wright Hewison School for the Deaf, which actually, there was a great, almost like a bid for her attendance. Everybody's doing these, da-da-da-da, uh, come to my school. Yeah. And so this school was kind of surprising in the fact that it won. There's a theory that Annie Sullivan, who was actually given free reign to choose, honestly, uh-huh. the parents were, well, we're not there, I don't yeah. know. And then yeah. Alexander Graham Bell's like, well, you're the closest, you know her abilities. And so there's two schools of thought, either these two young men, who really didn't have that many credentials in education, Either these two young men charmed Annie Sullivan, or Annie Sullivan saw, oh, I can mold them to the way I wish for them to treat her. Oh, I see, yes. So that was why they chose that school. Mm -hmm. And they paid for her education, Mm -hmm. too. It was like full-ride scholarship, but then it was the propaganda blitz. Look who's at our school. Let's take a little break, and when we come back, we'll talk about college. We're back. So Helen Keller, age 15, is in New York City with Ann Sullivan, toast of the town, attending her school. She met Mark Twain this year. And I think of Mark Twain as being a, you know, you think of him as being a misery boy, but he actually had a home in, in Hartford, Connecticut. He's pretty cosmopolitan Right himself. next door to Harriet Beecher Stowe, who we will talk about someday. But Mark Twain... Samuel Clemens is quoted as saying that Helen Keller and Napoleon were the two most interesting people to live in that entire century. <laughs> From one of the most interesting people to live in the entire century. Is that amazing? So talk about accolades and talk about famous. She also communicated not only with American celebrities. Mary Jane, the Countess of Meath, we're talking about Great Britain here, was so impressed after she had met her that the Countess started a foundation in 1885 to encourage children to assist with charitable works. She was so impressed by her meeting of Helen Keller that she actually changed her own life. A 15-year-old girl mm-hmm. had that impact on someone. She's with the, the deaf educators Helen does not approve of sign language. Um, American sign language. American sign language, and neither did Alexander Graham Bell. And that's a matter of some controversy among modern advocates of American sign language. Mm -hmm. They kind of point to Helen Keller kind of ruining the education for deaf children at the time, Mm -hmm. because it was thought by both of them that it would be better for deaf children to learn to adapt to the world around them as is and not single themselves out specially. I see. I, I can't explain that any more thoroughly, but, but she actually wanted to fund a school for deaf children, but uh, Alexander Graham Bell convinced her not to because he thought it was a bad idea. And, you know, she's 15, so yeah, this eminent man tells her that's not a good idea, and he convinces her that it was a good idea. You know, look look how well you have done in the world, mm-hmm. basically, is what he said. Right. I can see why she changed her mind, but a lot of people point to her not liking sign language as something kind of criminal, when, when really it was just kind of her own experience that was... It wasn't necessary. Yeah. She communicated very well without it. So we're off to college. Yes. Everybody wanted her just like they wanted her for her other education. Except for one school. They didn't want her. Radcliffe. So what school did she pick? Radcliffe. (laughs) When she was a small child and she had just heard about Harvard and its fame, she said, one day I will go to Harvard. Well, of course... Even now, she can't go to Harvard. It's it's men only. Right. But their sister school is Radcliffe. And mm-hmm. She's determined that she's going to live out that childhood dream and go to Radcliffe. Who didn't want her? They just mm-hmm. felt like it would be, you know, unwelcome publicity and there'd be too much going on. Mm-hmm. And- but she passed the entrance exam. So hello, class of 1904. 
Yay, Helen! Isn't that amazing? She was elected vice president of her freshman class. And, and um, they didn't want her. Silly. So, yeah, and at this time, and right at the end of her uh, education at her other school, they had gotten a private tutor for her. Mm-hmm. Because really, the education is kind of getting to the point where Annie Sullivan has never been to college. No. I mean, <laughs> you can only teach to a certain level, and then you have to learn it, and then to teach it. Yeah, and so so Annie Sullivan did accompany her, and you know was largely a translator, but really right. um, the instruction kind of got turned over to other people. Mm-hmm. And it was at this time that Annie Sullivan started to doubt, what am I here for? Am I legitimately here? I right. guess is what she was saying. So she was kind of a little bit concerned casting around. And of course, Helen never wanted anyone but her. No, you have a purpose. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, yeah, there was a little bit of a, a breakdown right about then with Annie Sullivan, trying to figure out if she had a place in Helen's new life mm-hmm. at college. But Helen goes to college, and Annie goes with her. Mm-hmm. So Annie actually gets a Radcliffe education. While she is in college, she writes her, her first book, The Story of My Life. And this she writes while she's going to school. An editor, John Macy, comes and helps her out with it. And Macy actually ends up falling in love and eventually marrying Anne Sullivan, who becomes Anne Sullivan Macy. So if you look up her name... That's where the Macy comes from. But now they sell the book and they finally have an income. Finally. They. I mean, they. Anne and Helen. You know, interestingly enough, when Anne married Mr. Macy, she set up a prenuptial agreement, unheard of at the time, Mm -hmm. where she left all her her royalties, which they divided in half, Mm -hmm. scrupulously. The public might not have regarded Annie Sullivan as a partner. I mean, she was just kind of like this... Translator. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but Helen Keller knew what she had been to her, and so they divided everything, which normally would have been left to her husband, and it was really unprecedented for a wife to do such a thing. Right. But she thought it was very important. Well, it's a very unusual relationship between Anne and Helen. Anne helped Helen. There's no question about that. Helen actually helped Anne. Anne had life, well, we'll talk about this later, but she had she had some issues that Helen actually helped her through in life. And so they, it was very much a partnership, very, very similar to a marriage, although without the romantic and, you know, but it's a very much a partnership. So do you think things worked out so well because Helen Keller was a genius or because Anne Sullivan was such a good teacher? <laughs> I mean, seriously. No, I think it's both. I think, think that the partner, just... I think that if they had sent a different type of person, if a different teacher had come in originally, I don't think that the relationship would have grown as it did. And you also think if she'd been given a Laura Bridgman, it wouldn't have worked? No. Yeah, I think it was star, yeah. not cross, but stars yeah. fortuitously crossing Absolutely. moment. Absolutely. Yeah, so much could have been different. So much could have been yeah. different. Yeah, no, they, I think that they just, I mean, there's certain people in life that you just get along better with than other people based on your personalities. And on paper, it might not make sense, but in life, it totally worked. During this time, she, well, from her childhood, she wrote to a great many famous people. But when we say she wrote, she actually wrote pen and paper. It wasn't Braille. She was writing actual, and her penmanship is actually way neater than mine. She had um, a technique of writing in square letters so that once, if you could write in a square, you can kind of tell if you like hold your hand up in the air and try to write a square why it's easier than right. making the diagonal and then trying to match it up right. when you come back down from right. the other side. Right. But everything was kind of connected in a big square, and it was a little easier to 
Well, she was taught it was a wooden pa- tablet yeah. with lo- grooves in it, very similar to the paper that kids learn to write on mm-hmm. with the two lines, and you need to keep within those lines or the three lines. They call it a stencil. dotted line, right. right. And that's how they, that's they how she, went over it, and that's how she learned to write. She wrote about this time her book that I had to recommend, The Story of My Life by Helen Keller. But I have to tell you, don't pick up just any edition. I highly, highly recommend the one that was edited by Roger Shattuck, S-H-A-T-T-U-C-K, because in this edition, you've got Helen's story, and then right afterward, you have the same basic story told through letters Anne Sullivan wrote to her friends, uh-huh. which is good. I kept flipping back and forth. That's the only stinky part. I wish they'd been like, the left side was Helen, the right side was oh, Anne, but whatever. Those Bibles that have all the versions all lined up uh, on one page. Yeah. And then at the end, there's an account by John Macy. So you've got three different viewpoints of the same story mm-hmm. in one book. So I highly recommend that if if you want to pick up one, this is the one, I think. Again, and it, and honestly, it's pretty sunny. And in it, John John Macy writes so highly of Helen's sunny disposition and how proud he was of her, and he really helped a lot. Mm-hmm. And it was nice for Helen's parents, uh, well, her mother, just at the time her father had died, uh, right. to have a man in her life. Really, I think they were always worried about these two women kind of bashing around the world alone. Helen actually graduates from Radcliffe as the first deaf-blind individual to receive a bachelor's degree. And I do have a picture in my computer of her with her cap and gown on. Uh-huh. Yeah, that one. Yep. But she started to do this kind of strange thing right about now with when she would refer to herself. She referred to herself in the third person before Anne Sullivan came along. And she called herself a name, like a different name than Helen, and she called herself Phantom. Yes. And that is very telling. Mm-hmm. She felt, and she would refer to herself like, Phantom didn't understand that the sun was whatever and the flowers had a color. Phantom didn't understand that other people had feelings. Well, she, until she got, she didn't feel like she had the, an identity. And, yeah. Again, I I will say she often referred to the fact that Anne Sullivan gave her back her human inheritance, meaning mm-hmm. she wasn't human when she was phantom. Right. So that's how strong so that, she felt about that. That alone should tell Anne that she was valued, and when she had doubts as to her value in Helen's life, that's that's it right there. So a year after Helen graduates from Radcliffe, cum laude. I didn't cum graduate. laude. With accolades. Yes. With honor. <laughs> Clearly, I did not graduate. With distinction. <laughs> I did graduate, but not with distinction. <laughs> well, she continued so, to write books. Yes. And a, a year later, that Anne and John married. And they set up House in Rentham. And uh, Helen, she writes her second book, The World I Live In. So now she has her voice. She's This is what she's going to, she's writing. She's going to become prolific in writing. So uh, Helen and John become socialists. Oh, by the way, Helen and John become socialists. And a lot of the Helen Keller research I read, it's like, oh, by the way, they become socialists, which I think is very interesting for the time. Now, she's also a a suffragist. Now, here's the common thread running. At the same time. Yeah, running through all that. And, okay, here's why I think that is. Okay. Even as early as when she was a small child and first heard about things like war or fighting or disagreement or politics, she was really innocently horrified and tearful at things, like Stories of war made her so upset, and stories of people being treated unfairly made Mm -hmm. her so upset. Mm -hmm. And I have a pop culture reference for you. If you've ever seen a movie with Bruce Willis, I swear this has a point, (laughs) called The Fifth Element. It is a science fiction-y type movie that has very little to do with Helen Keller, except for the fact that a very innocent 
intellectual being comes to Earth. And while she's learning about humans, she comes across war. And all the humans are like, oh, yeah, that's just war. That's, you know, fighting, eh, you know, whatever. She, and if you think about this, we should all be like this, too, was crying. And mm-hmm. the thought of it, that oh. humans treat humans so badly. Mm-hmm. And Helen Keller was always kind of like that being that is kind of outside of humans. Mm-hmm. And is seeing it in a different way, that very wise, yet completely untutored mm-hmm. person. She um, advocated socialism, I think, largely because of her desire originally to remove what she said were the causes of blindness, which is like overcrowding, mm-hmm. unsafe work conditions, unsanitary conditions mm-hmm. for the poor, mm-hmm. which really did cause a lot of those diseases um, and injuries. Mm-hmm. And so that's how it all started, that socialism thing. And then she was surprised and quite angry to get yelled at in the newspapers for this. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, this was, um, you know, when she was 39. So we're talking 1919, you know, Russian Revolution is afoot. She even went so far as to hang a hammer and sickle flag in her office, <laughs> which probably didn't go over too well. But, but so she was angry and said, oh, so long as I confine my activities to the blind, the newspapers compliment me and call me a wonder among women. But when I discuss poverty, it's a different story. It's laudable to give aid to the ha- to the handicapped, but to advocate that all human beings should have comfort and compassion is just a dream and someone that does not know about the world. Mm-hmm. What a world of hypocrites we have here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it totally makes sense. Totally get it. She was actually a... Um, Kind of a socialist up through, well, all the way through the 50s. Yeah. Um, even when we were going through the McCarthy era, she held held forth on Which that. Which is interesting that she, it says a lot about her character and her life's work that we don't associate her with that whole ugly part of our history. She wrote a book about socialism called Out of the Dark mm-hmm. uh, in 1913 that was actually burnt by the young Nazis in Germany. <laughs> they gathered as many copies as they could and burnt them. So evidently, I guess when the bad guys hate you, you're doing something right. That's interesting. But yeah, she was an outspoken feminist. She um, corresponded with Emmeline Parkhurst, who was an um, original, you know, early feminist mm-hmm. uh, while she was in jail. She corresponded with Eugene Debs, prominent socialist leader, while he was in jail. She campaigned heavily for him in the 1912 presidential election, and he actually got 6% of the votes, which was the highest the socialist party's ever gotten in America. Hmm. 6%. So, that, I mean, that seems low, but that's high for a third party. Oh, absolutely. Socialist candidate. Yeah, especially, oh, yeah. Oh, totally. And that probably thanks to her, you know, because what she said, people listened and people printed, mm-hmm. and the word got out. Let's talk about some not-so-deep things. Can we talk about her clothes? The span of life of this woman, she starts in just post-Civil War America in the South where they dress. And and the family has some money. They're not as wealthy as we'd like to think they are, but they, they had some money. And then she lives up through 1968. So the fashion realm that this woman gets to experience is beyond. It, it just makes me giddy. If you look at, we'll post the pictures, but some of her dresses and they're just Gorgeous, and I I know she's not known as, you know, you don't think Helen Keller, fashion icon. She's come a long way from the oil and powder and bustle yes. days. Yes, I just want to do that for a second. Okay, so let's talk about her love life because that's also not pretty. It's a pre- I was going to say it's, it's a pretty short. It's short. Chapter. There was one man. His name is Peter Fagan. He was John Macy's assistant, and at one point Annie's sick. And Peter comes in to help her out, help out Helen. Helen and Peter fall in love, but they're going to be secretive about it. So Peter proposes. Helen agrees. He runs off to get the marriage license while a reporter catches wind of it, prints a piece about it. 
Mama Kate back in Alabama reads about it and puts her foot down. Helen is a grown woman at this time. But, you know, Kate thinks he is a, not a, well, maybe a fortune hunter, maybe Uh a fame hound. You know, she doesn't trust his motivations. Mm -mm. She doesn't trust his upbringing. She doesn't know him at all. And she makes Helen come back to Alabama. And I think the point is, okay, if you come back here and it lasts, well, then it was meant to be. Mm -hmm. If you come back here and he fades, you -hmm. know what the story is. Right. Most people go through this about 13, 14 years old. Right. These days, but, you know. She lived her life in a different manner than the rest of us in her own time. So, yeah. So, anyway, the Peter Fagan romance fades and Helen never marries. You never find out any other instance of her having a romantic life. Now, there is a lady named Polly Thompson that has joined them. And ostensibly, she's Anne's nurse. Anne is starting to have some failing health. Mm -hmm. And so Polly is really a nurse, but people start calling them three musketeers because she's always around. She knows the finger alphabet now. Mm -hmm. She's um, kind of just as much Helen's assistant as Anne. She Mm -hmm. can take over and and things. Right. And John is out of the picture. John has, they, they separate, John and Anne separate, but they never divorce. Anne actually does not want to get divorced. She thinks it's shameful and she's embarrassed and she doesn't want to so she denies him divorcing her forever yeah Mm. polly and helen is in alabama polly and ann are traveling around trying to get ann healed up helen and ann sell the farm and rent them and everybody moves to forest hills new york so what do we do now 1918 America. You need to make some, make some, make a living. They are doing a lecture circuit that lasts for 50 years, but they need to get to a larger audience. So we make a motion picture. Yay! And there's a little, uh, you know, unknown dude, I say sarcastically, <laughs> whose name is Charlie Chaplin. Yes. Who decides he's going to produce this movie. That's right. So you would think that would be a, a big ticket, you know, Helen Keller, Charlie Chaplin. The movie is called Deliverance. It gets uh, good reviews, but financially, it is a flop. So they are grounded for cash. So where did they go? They went to the vaudeville circuit. The vaudevillians were trying to get them get them in the circuit years before, and Anne and Helen had turned them down because it was kind of not their platform where they wanted to be exposing themselves but at this point they do join the vaudeville circuit and they do this for a couple of years and i think that helen loves it there Mm -hmm. is uh we'll link you up to a description of their vaudeville show because you think okay what did they do and it was actually very interesting it was very audience interactive and there was they had a little dramatic twist on the whole their show and it was actually, I think it was a fun time for her because she could tell that they were enjoying the show. And, and of course, Anne filled her in on that. So I, I think that that really boosted her. I think that that, you know, the movie was a flop, but I think that she felt the love again during the vaudeville. Their vaudeville. And seriously, <laughs> did any of us know that she was a vaudeville star? No. I, that would never have occurred to me. Me neither. It's just not one of the things. I think when you think of Helen Keller, you think of, okay, the, the scene with the eggs, if you've seen mm-hmm. the movie. You think of the water pump. Mm-hmm. And then. And then she's you, on a pillar. Yeah, and, and then that's about it. D- spoken, you know, she did, you think of her as a writer. Because she did. But most people, I just no. don't think that people would. No. I seriously don't think anyone's got any more thought than. And I think that's what I knew about her yeah. before. All the research I think I knew about what happened in the movie and mm-hmm. then the water pump things yeah. were the only thing I knew. Hmm. So it's interesting. It, what yes. Depth, what depth. She lived a life of adventure, didn't oh. she? 
Adventure. Flying planes, riding elephants. Yes, if the opportunity arose, she took it. And as you said before, the opportunity arose quite a bit because yeah. they start touring the world. After the vaudeville era, Anne and Helen begin to work with the American Federation for the Blind. Now, finally, this is a this is an organization that she can really embrace. And, yeah, this, and a mission that, yeah. that she can carry out. And she does. She actually speaks to the Lions Club. And she asked them if the Lions Clubs could become Knights for the Blind. And it's, it's a pretty effective speech because if you look, Lions Clubs are still the Knights for the Blind today. Have you ever seen those boxes, like at convenience mm-hmm. stores or grocery stores, where they say, donate old eyeglasses mm-hmm. here? That That's directly... That's a Lions Club. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Helen's directly responsible for that. Yep. Yay, Helen. That's really awesome. So she begins to raise funds for the American Federation for the Blind, and it's a relationship that lasts. We will link you up to the American Federation for the Blind site because there is a lot of information about her, lots of pictures lots more than we would ever put up on our site. Helen, Anne, and Polly begin a world speaking tour, helping the blind and the rights of the handicap in general. They all over the world. They are meeting dignitaries. They are meeting presidents, heads of state, all over the world. And she's given all these opportunities in all these countries. And it's an exciting time. And she's championing a cause. And that's what we, and I think that's one of the things people remember about her. Something that is very sad, however, yes. inevitably really happens in 1936. Mm-hmm. And that is the till death do us part moment between Anne and Helen. Yep. Anne Sullivan um, dies in 1936. Mm-hmm. She goes in. She is led into the room, Helen, where Anne is, and she feels her face, and it feels wrong. It doesn't feel like the face she's used to feeling. It doesn't feel like the hand she's used mm-hmm. to feeling, and she starts shrieking. This makes me cry to think I about know. it. She starts shrieking, it's not teacher. It's not teacher. It's not teacher. Like, over and over, and oh, my gosh, I think she cries for three weeks. Yeah, people are very worried about her at this time because it's like her half of her is gone. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. her whole life is gone, and, and yes. It's very sad. It makes tears come to my eyes. Mm -hmm. Um, The only thing I can say is thank goodness that Polly Thompson has been there Mm -hmm. because there's a nice little bridge. You know, I mean, you know, it's not the same. It'll never be the same. But thank goodness, thank goodness that Polly was there. Right. I think. Oh, I'm tearing up right now. You are tearing up. It's very sad. It is very sad. And it must have been a really hard time. But uh, Helen and Polly do continue the work. Um, Helen does write a few more books. And they buy a home in Westport, Connecticut called Arcan Ridge. Mm-hmm. That's where they live. And, and there is some video out there of the home itself. So they built Arcan Ridge. And then a few years later, while they are out of the country, Polly and, and Helen, I believe the house burns down. So what do they do? They build Arcan Ridge too, <laughs> which is an almost identical house to the original one in Westport. I love that they name houses. I would like to name my house. What would you name your house? I don't know, but I have a friend named John who has a house called Chestnut House. And mm-hmm. I think I might have even said this about him before. He's trying to get the American Postal Service to right. deliver mail to Chestnut House. Uh-huh. I'm <laughs> so mad. We grew up in a house that was called Grass Hill. It was a very old yeah. colonial home in Connecticut, and it was called Grass Hill. Well, and our house in Rhode Island was on Lippet Hill Farm, and it was I, I lived in the Dower House. Mm-hmm. And honestly, if you could say to somebody, oh, you know, we're over at the Lippet Hill Farm Dower House, they would know where right, to exactly go. Exactly right, yeah. I don't know what I'd name my I house. I don't know. It's in a we'll think about it. Pretty typical subdivision. Mine's old. Maybe I could find some you character. Could. Yeah, you you have stuff to hang at your a name on your house. That's for sure. <laughs> old plumbing house. Yours is old plumbing house. <laughs> <laughs> Original wiring house. <laughs> 
Becca's house is very charming. <laughs> My house old. is very common. <laughs> So Helen is standing on her pedestal all over the world. She's really a beacon for overcoming adversity. That's how she's held up, and that's how she still is. Now in, okay, now, in 1957, this is how we all know Helen Keller, most likely. Yes. In 1957, there is a play called The Miracle Worker, produced based on Helen's early life. And it debuts on Broadway. Mm-hmm. And then in 1962, it is made into a, a movie with Patty Duke, and that's one that a lot of people have seen. Although there are several more, and actually the one that we know is from the 70s, the 79 Melissa Gilbert version. Mm -hmm. And then actually more recently in 2000, there is the Haley Kate Eisenberg version. But the really interesting thing about the Melissa Gilbert version is that Patty Duke, who had originally been Helen in The Miracle Worker, Mm -hmm. was now Anne. No, it doesn't say anywhere if Helen Keller actually experienced or or was translated the original miracle worker but it's perfectly possible that she knew of and about it because she was still around in 1962 and that movie came out so helen actually achieves a lifelong her what she had wished for a childhood she does get an honorary degree from harvard she does i, I love that and she makes peace with the perkins school which is which is good and she also gets an Oscar for a documentary about her. She gets an honorary Oscar. What awards can't we give this woman? Not only that, what else did she get? She gets the nation's highest civilian honor, the Presidential Medal of Freedom from President Johnson. He confers it upon her. Now, let's just tell you how important this honor is. Other female honorees include Mother Teresa, Margaret Thatcher, Georgia O'Keeffe, Rosa Parks. This is what we're dealing with. Stephen Hawking, if we want to throw Georgia a Georgia O'Keeffe. Mm-hmm. There's, There's a woman for a future podcast. Yeah, there's so there are lots of categories, and Helen mm-hmm. Keller actually was presented the honor for activism. So her mm-hmm. work with the blind was what not not her work with Charlie Chaplin, uh, her work with the blind <laughs> was what had um, gotten her this honor. And on the medal, it, it's for especially meritorious contribution to cultural or other significant public or private endeavors. And the really sad thing is that she cannot go to the ceremony to accept Mm-mm. it because she has had a stroke. That was in 1961, and she did retire from public life. Polly had died a year before that, so uh, Helen is being cared for at home. Now, I will tell you, because I, I was freaking out, like, wait a minute, Anne's mm-hmm. gone, Polly's gone. Mm-hmm. Who's there at the house? Mm-hmm. But in a weird, ironic twist of events, Polly had gotten sick ahead of Helen, and they had hired her a nurse mm-hmm. named Winnie. Corbally, C-O-R-B-A-L-L-Y. I don't know how to pronounce that. If anyone's, you know, especially Irish, they could tell me. But um, so she was actually the nurse for Polly, and she was there at the end. Now, she was no Polly. She didn't, you know, she didn't spell and did all this thing. And they didn't have the relationship. No, but she was there uh, to handle the physical, you know, needs. And actually, again, YouTube, there is a YouTube video out there from, I believe, the American Federation for the Blind put it together of Polly in bed and Helen bringing her breakfast and then having breakfast together side by side in Arcan 2, which is kind of neat. Yeah. On June 1st. 1968. Mm-hmm. That is so soon ago. I just missed her. I just missed her. I was there. You were there. I was. Is that amazing to you? Yes. It's amazing to me because of when she was born. Yeah. I mean, 15 years after the Civil War, she's born, and she died in our lifetime. So, yeah. It's... Your lifetime. Okay, my lifetime. <laughs> Fine. Yes, I'm older. Whatever. So, her ashes are interred with those of Anne and Polly in the National so Cathedral. Much, yep. So, the three mm-hmm. musketeers... March on. Are together. So, what so, did you take away? 
I took away how important, this is like not what you would expect, I guess, but I took away how important affection and people's faith in you will determine your fate. The difference between what happened to Laura Bridgman, which is just a really sad downward spiral of loneliness. She's like an old dog that everyone hated. The old mm-hmm. dog that was kind of stinky. mean dog, yeah. Or a cat that comes out and scratches you every time you walk by. And, and that's how she yeah. turned out because yeah. she really she was treated mm-hmm. like a commodity. She was treated like nothing more than a sideshow. Right. Really, by someone that she trusted. Right. I might have to do a Laura Bridgman special feature, too, because I'm so... Yeah, let's do that. ...anti what happened there. So that's what I'm taking away from it. That you really can do... You really can do anything. You know. That's so much more upbeat. I mean, I did take away upbeatness because I really didn't know as much about her as I do now, and I didn't see her as much as a person as I do now. Unfortunately for me, I started my research not by reading books by Helen Keller, but by reading this book called Blind Rage, Letters to Helen Keller by Georgina Klieg. And I really love this book. It's the the woman who wrote it is is blind, but she starts off talking about it's letters. It's reconciling her relationship with the woman that was put up on a pedestal. And it was always Helen Keller did this with a smile on her face. Why can't you? So she kind of goes into she wants to reconcile her relationship. It's a it's a creative nonfiction, I guess we could call this book. But I, I really did enjoy it. She goes on a tour of Ivy Green with her husband, and the tour guide is saying things like, "Do you see this beautiful Oriental rug?" Ellen Keller never saw it, you know. Oh my goodness! <laughs> and you see these beautiful pictures of her. Wasn't she a pretty child? Helen Keller never saw it, you know, and so she's just reconciling all the, in the book, and it's, I would recommend it. Well, and everybody does say that, Hel- you know, Helen Keller was a master of, she's the paragon of this and that, but mm-hmm. honestly, it was hard, slogging work for her, her and Ann Sullivan. It's mm-hmm. not like, it's not like this happened to her. Mm-hmm. She made it happen. Right, yes. It was, you know, it was something inside of her, and I don't know that everyone should be held to that standard. No. Now, if you want to share the story of Helen Keller with your children, there is a very good website, actually um, by a descendant of, I believe, her sister, her younger sister, Mildred. It's called Braille Bug, and it's at the Helen Keller Kids Museum online. I'll provide mm-hmm. a link, but it's very interesting. There are pictures there, like no tomorrow. Yes. And vid- links to videos. And so that's a good way to start sharing the Helen Keller story with your kids if you don't want to get into all that um socialism and, and all that you know it does kind of mention it later and it shows pictures of her in that time and everything but mm-hmm. but yeah that's a really good way to introduce not only your kids but yourself to her too okay i do want to finish with this at her funeral in his eulogy senator lister hill of alabama said of helen keller she will live on one of the few the immortal names not born to die her spirit will endure as long as man can read and stories can be told of the woman who showed the world that there are no boundaries to courage and faith. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye. For show notes and links to the things we talked about today, please visit us at thehistorychicks.com. Follow us on Twitter at The History Chicks with, with an, an X. X. Or like us on Facebook without an X. If you'd like to see in real life, please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on iTunes. The music in our podcast comes courtesy of Music Alley. Visit them at music.mevio.com.
move up and down. 